Our first reading will be taken from three places in Scripture, Ezekiel, John, and Revelation. Through them, we trace a biblical theme that further brings to light the resurrection appearance of Jesus, looked at today from John. Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 1 to 2, 6b to 12. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, but the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. From Engedi to Enaglaim, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail. But they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water from them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. John chapter 7, verse 37 to 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me, and let the ones who believe in me drink. As the scripture has said, Out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Revelations chapter 22, 1-2 Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You're able for today's reading from John, chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, 
and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of fish, 153 of them. And although there there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dare ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I begin, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge and thank you for your presence with us wherever we are. And we'd ask now that your word would rule over us, your spirit would teach us, and that you being known and glorified would be our chief concern. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This year we've been looking at the Gospel of John, allowing the seasons of the church year to guide us. And this Easter season, we've been looking at the resurrection appearances of Jesus that close off the gospel, that declare unequivocally, Jesus is risen from the dead, and invite us to reflect, so what does that mean? And how then shall we live? Now, there's one post-resurrection feature that is found in every single gospel. In light of the resurrection, Jesus gives his followers a call, a commission, a way of being in the world. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics, give us that call, that commission, that way of being in the world with the words, go, proclaim, tell, baptize, disciple, teach. Now, if you've been around the church for any length of time, you've probably heard sermons on these closing verses of the Gospels. And in general, they usually follow a predictable pattern. Jesus' resurrection means that our sins are forgiven, means that there is now life after death. And so we need to get about the business of telling others this good news so that they too might have their sins forgiven and have life after death. So go, proclaim, teach, disciple, baptize. Do we find something similar here in John? Well, indeed we do. But as we've been seeing, John has been saying to us, not only does the resurrection mean your sins are forgiven, not only does the resurrection mean there is life after death, the resurrection means nothing less than the dawn of a new creation. Easter morning changed the course of human history. 
Our future is not God taking us out of this world to life beyond death, but rather God entering once more into this world to renew the entirety of creation, which began at Jesus' resurrection. In John, like the synoptics, in light of the resurrection, Jesus gives his followers a call, a commission, a way of being in the world, but it isn't given with the words, go, proclaim, teach, disciple, baptize, though it certainly includes those things. It's given to us on a fishing trip, which as a fisherman is an incredible way, I would think, to be formed as a follower of Jesus. So if you have your Bible handy, I'll invite you to turn to John chapter 21. Now, to understand the the depth, the meaning of this resurrection appearance of Jesus, we need to understand a little of the geography of Israel. About 15 years ago, I visited Israel with a friend. One of the things that really struck me was the apparent rarity of fresh water. Living in Ontario, you're, you're never all that far from a pond, a stream, a river, a lake, but there I was struck by how arid and, and dry everything was, except for one place. When we got up north in the area around Galilee, it was lush, it was fertile, it was fed by the runoff from the mountains. Everything flowed down into the lake, the Sea of Galilee, Lake Tiberias, with its abundant fishery. And then emptying out of the bottom of the lake came the Jordan River, winding through the lush Jordan Valley, and then emptied into the Dead Sea, named for good reason. Yes, good to float in, good for spa treatments, but nothing living was there. It was dead. 33% salt, nine times saltier than the ocean. An unexpected mouthful of that water, and you would asphyxiate within moments. This geography paints a vivid picture of the reality of life, doesn't it? That life flows to death. That sin and death have so impacted our earthly life that eventually everything, relationally, socially, materially, unravels. Life leads to death. In one of the darkest times of Israel's history, where this vivid geographic picture was borne out in every aspect of life, God gave the prophet Ezekiel a vision, a vision of hope. It was one of our first readings that Valerie had read for us. A vision picturing a time where there would be a new flow of water in the Israel, where water would flow under the temple, the meeting place of heaven and earth, flow down into the Jordan Valley and then flow into the Dead Sea. But instead of life leading to death, this water would rejuvenate the Dead Sea, becoming fresh, bringing about an abundance of life, an abundance of fish, such that fishermen would cast their nets for a bountiful catch. Jesus makes reference to this image in John chapter 7 where he says, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds, Jesus said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him would receive, but as yet the Spirit had not come. And now here in John 21, the Spirit has been given. The presence of God 
has come. Not to dwell in a temple of wood and stone, but to dwell in a temple of flesh and blood. To dwell in a people. And out of that people was to become flow of living water. And the first thing those people do is they go out and they cast their nets for an abundance of fish. Do you see the connection here? The fishing story reveals the call. We're to be a people chosen by Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, to have living water flow in and through us, to bring life, to bring healing to every aspect of life that has been marred by sin and death. It is a comprehensive and holistic call. It is food for the hungry, water for the thirsty, justice for the downtrodden, presence to the lonely, freedom to the captives, good news to those in sin's grip living in such a way that we anticipate the new creation flooding into every aspect of life. In light of the resurrection, that's the call, the commission, the way of being in the world to allow life, the spirit that animates the new creation to flow in and through us. Now, the story is told in such a way that it reveals to us the distinctive marks of a people engaged in that call, the distinctive marks of an Easter people. And as we go through the the story, these distinctive marks will naturally fall out for us. Verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself. Verse 14. This was the third time Jesus revealed himself. Jesus wants them to know. John wants us to know With certainty, he's risen. It's striking, but when literary scholars come to the gospel accounts, they note just how unique they are in ancient literature because they contain details that are in no way significant. In no way do they move the story along. Their explanation for such an anomaly, it must have been written by eyewitnesses. Why else would you include what John did with, what Peter rather did with his clothing before he jumped into the lake? Why else would they include that it was a hundred meters offshore? Why else would they include how many fish there were? It's not significant. It doesn't move the story along in any way. Unless it was the work of an eyewitness. This is what I saw. We counted the fish. Of course they counted the fish. They're fishermen. I'm a fisherman. We count the fish. We measure how long it was. We take pictures and hold it closer to the camera so it looks bigger and then post it on social media. Jesus wants them to know. John wants us to know with certainty. He is risen. As John has told us, he writes these things so that we would have life. In his name. The people of the call and Easter people are rooted in the reality of the resurrection. As I said in the Easter sermon, if the resurrection is going to have any impact on your life, if its truth and power is going to resonate to the deepest recesses of your heart and life, if it's going to change you in any real way, you've got to believe that it happened physically, materially, historically. Now, the first thing that John tells us is who was there. 
seven disciples. And what are they doing? Well, nothing really. They're just together. John wants us to know they were together. In some ways, it's a, an absolute miracle that they're together. If we were to take the time to reflect on who they were, where they're from, their personalities, their commitments, their convictions, there are any number of things that could have scattered them to the winds. As an example, one of them was a zealot, a member of a terrorist organization that sought to rid the land of Israel of Romans by any means necessary. They had a murderous intolerance for any Jew who would collaborate with the enemy, like tax collectors. How is it that Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector could even spend a moment together in the same room, let alone three years together? The people of the call and Easter people are supernaturally held together by Jesus in spite of their differences. In some ways, Little T isn't all that diverse of a community. In other ways, it's incredibly diverse. One of those areas of diversity is in our political convictions. As I reflect on the broad spectrum of our community in that way, and I won't use names, I see two individuals. One probably represents the most conservative conviction in our community. The other represents perhaps the most progressive commitments in our community. And yet, when I look at each of them, I see a unity in Christ. And the fruit of that unity is borne out as I've watched beautiful expressions of the Spirit's work in them and through them, yielding a self-giving love for the sake of the other, serving those at the margins. It's beautiful to behold. And it can only be the work of the Spirit that allows for that fruit to come about. It can only be the work of the Spirit that brings them to call little Trinity home. Because in no other place would you find such polarized conviction in togetherness. We know that our world is deeply polarized, becoming more so by the day, fueled, amongst other things, by social media algorithms. We don't know how to have conversations with those across the aisle, so to speak, because we're not in relationship with those across the aisle. And so tribalism abounds. Central to our mission, our call, our way of being in the world is our togetherness, a community where differences in in race, political conviction, socioeconomic markers do not divide us, but rather are a witness of the new creation a supernatural togetherness brought about by Jesus. The disciples are together. Together, as Peter decides to go fishing, together they go. And they're out all night, and they catch nothing. A figure is seen at the shore, and he asks a question, anticipating a no. You haven't caught anything. No, we haven't. Throw your net on the other side then. And boom, they're on fish. I spend a good amount of time fishing in my off hours, and I must admit to a few moments on those tough days where I've begun to pray, okay, Jesus, where should I cast next? You did it for them? How about for me? Many of the men in this boat 
were professional fishermen for before they responded to the call. They knew that lake like the back of their hand. They probably had all the spots marked out on their GPS in the hummingbird fish finder. And yet a random stranger on shore directs them as to where to cast their net. And they catch more than they've ever done before. People of the call and Easter people are marked by their utter reliance upon Christ alone. I think one of the sins of the Western church, one of the sins of us as Western followers of Jesus, is our self-reliance. We'll trust above everything else on our gifts, our competencies, our techniques, our methods. One of the commentators was reflecting on a Canadian study of churches that were unified together in this evangelistic campaign. And one of the things that was involved in this campaign was all of these churches going together to a conference where they learned the the latest techniques and methods of evangelism. And at the end of the campaign, they polled those churches to see how successful this evangelistic campaign had been. And what they found was that every church had seen 1.9 new people come to faith in Christ over the year. 1.9. The commentator compared that to the developing world, where the church is growing explosively not through trust in in method or technique or competency, but trust in Jesus rooted in prayer. The same summer I went to Israel, I also spent a couple of weeks in Nigeria building the relationship between the church I was working at and the Diocese of Kaduna. Its bishop is now the general secretary to the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he came to Little T to preach a few years ago. And in Kaduna, when I was there, they weren't just planting churches. They were planting entire dioceses. Remembering my time there this week brought about fresh conviction. Because the pastors there had none of the resources that we take for granted. Oh, but did they pray. Every little decision in life and in ministry was taken to God. Lead me. Guide me. Give me the words. Give me the wisdom. Give me the heart. As a church, we're made up of some incredibly competent people. And I think we fall into that same sin of self-reliance. But as people of the call, an Easter people, we must intentionally step away from that to be marked by a reliance upon Christ alone. One of the things we've done through COVID is virtual prayer and praise evenings. And as we've been reflecting on who we want to be as a church post-pandemic, the kind of church that God calls us to be, reliance upon Christ expressed in prayer has got to be central. And so we will continue at the very least those evenings of prayer and praise that we might express our utter reliance upon Christ. I suspect that the disciples in the boat that morning, they would have had a little bit of deja vu. Because three years earlier, the exact same thing had happened. 
And the stories recorded for us in Luke chapter 5, and they're almost identical stories, save one glaring difference. In both stories, the disciples are out in a boat. Both stories, they fish all night. In both stories, they don't catch a thing. In both stories, Jesus says, cast your net onto the other side. In both stories, they catch an abundance of fish. In both stories, Peter's reaction is what is focused on, but that is where the glaring difference rests. In Luke 5, Peter fearfully wants to run the other way. He kneels down at Jesus' feet, depart from me for I'm a sinner. But now in John 21, he can't get close to Jesus fast enough. Hurley ties his garment around him. He leaps into the water, swims the hundred meters to shore, leaves the rest of the disciples and the fish in the boat, all to be with Jesus, to know his presence, his love, his embrace. The people of the call and Easter people will be marked, I think, by both reactions together. We know our sin in light of the holiness of Jesus. So sinful that he had to die for us, but so loved that he was glad to die for us. And the balance between these two truths has created a distinctive posture in us where there cannot be a whiff of superiority, no expression of othering anyone else. It'll swallow up and banish every ism in your heart and life. For we know in the eyes of God that we are all equally in need. But through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we've tasted his forgiveness, known his love, felt his embrace, which forms and shapes our love, our forgiveness, our embrace of others. And that is where Jesus invites us to linger. The other disciples row to the shore and Jesus invites them to eat. The one who washed their feet, died their death, serves them still. I've cooked you breakfast. Come and eat with me. We miss the significance of that. In our culture to eat with another implies friendliness and connection for sure. But in that ancient culture, to eat with someone was a pledge of relationship. I want to know you. and I want you to know me. Deeply, truly, closely. Jesus invites you to eat with him. People of the call and Easter people are marked by deep relationship with Jesus. Long to linger in his love, revel in his glory, know his acceptance, encounter his forgiveness. Finding our true self, true value, true identity in him alone. In light of the resurrection, Jesus gives his followers a call, a commission, a way of being in the world. And a fishing story reveals that call. A people chosen by Jesus, empowered by the Spirit to have living water flow in them and through them, to bring life and healing to every aspect of life that has been marred by sin and death. Marked out as an Easter people in our resurrection conviction, our supernatural togetherness, our utter reliance upon Christ, our apprehension of the complementary truths of the gospel, and our deep intimacy with Jesus. May we, 
as the people of the call and Easter people by the power of the Spirit, live in such a way that we anticipate that new creation flooding every aspect of life. A promise, as Revelation puts it, of a river that flows through all the earth, bringing healing to the nations. In hope, we await that moment as we pray. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.